I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Turrbal people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The most important part with just any restaurant in general is to remember like you're there for the people, you know, it's like a firm believer that the restaurant decides what it wants to be, you know, if people keep asking me for this, well, then that's going to be on the list. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Alex Belotus can be found swinging wine bottles at Safridi's Spaghetti Bar on most days of the week. Unless, of course, it's a Monday, and then you're out of luck, because you'll be on the couch. Alex is an award-winning sommelier and joins me today to talk all things pasta and pinot. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining me. Absolute pleasure. I know it is Saturday morning, um, and you'd probably still be in bed if it wasn't for me. What would you typically be doing normally on your Saturday morning? Uh, yeah, no, still in bed, and then <laughs> pretty much walked out. I live two blocks away from work, so... I've pretty much timed it these days. I can wake up 30 minutes, showered, dressed, and at work. Mm, there's so many pros and cons to that. When I was in Canada, I lived a block away from my uh, work as well. And I would always, on a double shift, go home for a shower. And I loved that. But then at the same time, you know, if someone needed me, there was no excuse to not just kind of pop by. Yeah, the best part is like, every time that I've run out of something, like on a busy day, like whether it be docker pads, printer ink or something, next week I double order it. So my apartment is just full with just anything you need to run a restaurant. I could run a restaurant out of my apartment, to be honest. Mm. Oh, that sounds like an idea and something people have done. So be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, tell me about how you got the wine bug and how you got your start. Uh, yeah, I think I was, look, my parents had a small cafe restaurant when I was growing up. So many fond memories of being 14 and polishing cutlery, forced to polish cutlery on, on my days off. Uh, but really it wasn't, wasn't until I finished uni, did all that. And I was just working in restaurants whilst applying for jobs. And, and I met, I met the head sommelier at the restaurant I was working at. And I just remember just seeing him like, just sitting down in between services, just trying all these wines, and then he'd get to go upstairs and sit in his nice air-conditioned office. I'm like, "What? what is your job? What is it? He's like, oh, I, I buy wine for this restaurant. I was like, that's a full-time job, just trying wines and buying wines. He's like, yeah. I was like, I told him, I said, I'll have your job within five years. It took me six in the end, but <laughs> I eventually did take his job. <laughs> It's funny when you, uh, yeah, you don't realize it's a thing and you think, gosh, they've got it cushy, which as you now know, is not, not so easy. So how did you go about securing that job? Uh, well, yeah, once I found out that that was his full-time job, I just cozied up to him as much as I could. I was probably very annoying at age 21, just asking him all these mundane questions, but I kept hassling him, kept asking. Eventually, you know, you go through the, the rungs of a junior sommelier, assistant sommelier, and just kept learning as much as I could. Like you'd, you'd finish on the clock and you'd go home and you'd just read books. Read, 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 read as much as you could. And, yeah, I guess you just got to be there long enough and study hard enough and you'll eventually get there. Well, as someone that did know you at 21, I think I met you around that time. You weren't annoying at all, but you were very keen and you threw yourself into... There's a lot of people that would disagree with that. <laughs> well, I think it was enthusiastic and I, I tend to love that. Um, and how did you, you know, go about becoming a sommelier and, and 
you eventually moved um, over to London. But w- what did you do about kind of other than just reading a lot? How did you go about um, getting that accreditation? Uh, like most people, there's, there's always a couple of different channels. Obviously, you've got uh, the Quartermaster Sommeliers, which was the most pivotal. But you've got your WSETs as well. So I think my work at the time uh, paid for level one, two, and three for me. And I always wanted to do Quartermaster Sommeliers. And I think that's probably the most structured way to go about it. Yeah, certainly it is. And, um, you know, it's a really good... Um kind of avenue if you especially if you're working on the floor and when did you move to London and what was the decision behind that I think at the time it just felt like there was a bit of a glass ceiling over my head I didn't think my boss was going to move on anytime soon nor why would he you know it was quite the cushy job but I felt that and look I'm probably going to get in trouble for this but it was just so many times going to do different sort of competitions and exams and stuff like that in Sydney and I felt the Sydney sort of wine scene was just so kind of clicky and a little elitism. No offense, Shante, but but I felt that if I was going to go do it, you know, I'll go try to instead of just moving down to Sydney, getting a job at say Key or something. I I thought I'd just try to see how far I could go with it. So I think there was a when the top fifty restaurants award when it was in Melbourne, there was uh, the Soms of the World program. I think there was like 50 of us. I think like 25 Soms from all around Australia and 25 Soms from some of the restaurants that were actually up for awards and managed to kind of well, come pretty close with one sommelier from London. And luckily I had an EU passport and he just pretty much at the end of it said, mate, if you ever come to London, you've, you've got a job here. So I think I gave one month's notice as soon as pretty much the next day and four weeks after that I was in London it was tough by the way (laughs) (laughs) well I know that they are known for working crazy hours but working their absolute butts off so hats off to them you worked at the Clove Club in London what was the experience like I thought that well it, it was great like I got to try so many different wines so like everything that you've just been studying, like things that you'd only just read in books your whole life and actually getting to taste them almost on a weekly basis was pretty cool. But like you said, the, the hours are rough. I remember doing a hundred hour work week once, you know, at 40, 50 hours, your legs hurt. You can imagine, like, you can imagine that on the floor, but at a hundred hours, your neck, your arms, and that's still me being at like 27, 28, everything hurts at a hundred hours. <laughs> That's brutal. I've never gone over 90, so I can't I can't actually even imagine that. That's pretty much sleeping at the restaurant, no? Oh, I remember the day we shot, the, the longer shift. I think I started at probably 9 a.m. And because we were then shut over the Christmas break, I would finish service at around, I think, 11 p.m. and then followed that up with a sweet five-hour stock take. <laughs> Oh, God. Stock takes, they always come at the worst time. <laughs> Brutal. So what, what did you notice was the biggest difference of um, kind of drinking culture and, and, and restaurant culture? Was there anything that you kind of were challenged by when you first moved over there? No, I think I was most surprised by I think there's sort of a few wine distributors in Australia that have really like kind of – convinced all of Australia that these are the wines that everyone in the whole world's talking about right now and everyone just kind of buys them up on allocation and then 
I think I was kind of surprised like when I went over there and some of those wines were kind of obscure to a lot of sommeliers over there. Can you give me an example of like a wine that like that you're talking about? Oh, not without getting in trouble with certain distributors in, in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. When you first go over, you know, to a different country, um, I can imagine it's, it, it is intimidating because you kind of are like, well, I've got to learn a huge wine list and I've got to do a lot. Do you start by just kind of, you know, finding wines you are familiar with and feeling confident about and kind of, you know, getting your your confidence and getting your feet that way when you kind of step out onto the floor? Yeah, I think it just comes to you over a while. But like if you've done all that structured, all those tastings, all those you know, reading, all those books, you kind of have an idea of what it should look like. And in most good restaurants, they'll give you a little sort of freedom to kind of push these wines. And, and you know, if I describe that wine differently than what it might look like in your glass, well, that's on me and I'll take it off your bill and we'll go back to the drawing board. But I think the best part is to just try to go out and crack those wines and and then you're like, all right, well, this is pretty much what I thought it would look like, or this is a bit more left of center. But and then that's now in your arsenal. You now know it. It's in the back of your head. This wine looks like this. Hmm. Yeah, and it's good to have those wines because you know you never know what the the client's going to ask for or what they're into. So you've you've got to have like a range, don't you? That you kind of have up your sleeve and you go, okay, I can throw this out. But tell me about your journey with Cabernet or Claret, as they say over there. Yeah, I don't know. It's maybe it's just in Brisbane, you know, but everyone seems to kind of <laughs> dislike. Maybe it's because you know we've got thirty-five degree days over here, and drinking big fifteen percent alcohol cabernets from Margaret River just doesn't make sense over here. But something about just the history of Bordeaux and all these you know, rich fuddy-duddy types just only wanting to drink Bordeaux. After a while, you wrap your head and you're like, all right, you know. It's not all one-dimensional. You are there. There's such a big range out there, including like there's some pretty cool new age sort of even natty Bordeaux producers like Claude Jagaron and a few others out there that like you're like oh wow like there actually is some people pushing the limit of what Bordeaux should look like. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I've t- I've had a, a a range of kind of emotions about Bordeaux and about Cabernet, and now I have a huge love of Cabernet. It's probably you know one quarter of my heart when it comes to wine so I love it but I think it you know it does manifest in so many different forms and you can have some really traditional stuff and you can have some really lively bright lower alcohol expressions um but did you and do you end up you know drinking Cabernet yourself now uh just you know like most people who work with wine I drink beer Shante <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> So tell me about when you returned to Australia, you were offered the position of head sommelier at Stokehouse Q, which must have been, um, you know, a pretty amazing feeling. How did how did that come about? Uh, yeah, to be honest, a little shout out to my old general manager, Peter McMahon. So I, when you move over to London, obviously a lot of people, you know, they slowly start to forget about you and stop calling as much. But my old the old GM of Stokehouse, he, he called me like three or four times while I was still in London just to check in on me. So when things did change, my old eventual the head som that had trained me for all those years back in the day, when he finally did move on, he's like, hey, this position's open and we'd love you to come back. And I was like, yeah, uh, 
had a very soft spot for that place always growing up there from like that was my whole wine journey all pretty much it just felt coming full circle to go back there and do that job yeah but i mean i think that that's amazing and congratulations to you unfortunately how long did it last before um the world essentially shit itself with covid (laughs) Uh, i think maybe i got a good two years in there oh that's good that's I, i thought it was a shorter position Nah, about two years followed by a pretty sweet redundancy, so I'm never going to (laughs) complain. Well, two years is definitely more than enough time to get get your kind of teeth in there. What did you kind of approach it with? Did you go in and kind of say I want to keep everything the same did you want to make big changes you know what did what what was your lasting impression that you wanted to have on the place uh I think just like it kind of comes back to when I say like when a few good distributors have really like everyone I just feel like there's just so many cookie cutter kind of wine list you know everywhere you kind of go and once again this I'm talking mainly about Brisbane but there's just a lot of the same producers, the same, same wines everywhere you go. Like, it's kind of just a bit boring for want of a better term. So I think I tracked down, like, a lot of these cool producers and you'd be surprised, like, although they might not be on the on the, on the the circuit as much, like, they are still somehow finding their way into Australia, a lot of these wines. So it's just about sort of tracking down the wines that I fell in love with over there and then slowly assimilating them into the wine list was the big thing well that's a really good way to kind of um yeah have something unique and introduce people to to you know left to center wines that they haven't seen before which is always kind of sometimes a bit tricky i suppose for for you know um guests in a restaurant but that's you know that's the job of sommeliers at the end of the day isn't it to be there to to communicate and and talk them through it so how does the freddy's come about to be honest turns out during COVID, you can't sit on Centrelink forever, it turns out. You know, you have to eventually get a job. <laughs> That's very true. There was really, after, I think, you know, like my wine journey had kind of just been progressing and I just kind of wanted to take a bit of a step back from that really structured, you know, wearing a suit with the little, with the little sort of great pins on your lapel. Like I just kind of wanted to take a step back and just have a more just down to earth approach with wine, wear a t-shirt and some jeans and just still do the same level of service, but in more kind of just casual kind of don't have to think so hard. Well, that's a nice approach. And you ended up opening, um, Sofridis with, was it, uh, the chef, one of the chefs from Stokehouse, is that right? Uh, he, he was the executive chef of Stokehouse at Melbourne and Brisbane and yeah, Pretty much just went to him like, well, during COVID, oh my God, I know it's controversial to say, but those were some great months, not being unemployed and just playing golf two, three times a week. I'm still rubbish at it, by the way, but but we were just playing golf and I kind of just said like, let's just do a pasta bar. Let's just have some fun with it and just not take ourselves so seriously for a bit. Yeah, I think for a lot of people that time was a breath of fresh air for people that have been running on the mill and like a mouse for so long. I certainly really took a step back and thought about what I wanted and just gave myself some, yeah, some breathing space. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. It's It, it was an important time to kind of reevaluate. And I, and I love what you've said about that. And, you know, Often when someone says to me, what do you want to eat? If you could go anywhere, I often say bistro or I say a good plate of pasta and a a really good 
glass of wine. It doesn't get much better than that. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that chefs I know like to do on their days off. They, they, you know, so I think that the the idea behind it's amazing. Yeah, well, I think we ruffled some feathers as well, especially with some with some of the Italian community in Brisbane, because obviously me, well, my my business partner Ollie, he's he's from Leicestershire, you know. Neither of us are Italian, but so. He's got a really kind of interesting twist, you know. We've done like green curry spaghettis and stuff like that. Just like, just a whole like, just just reimagining spaghetti or pasta in general and doing some weird flavors, you know, kind of things that we were doing at Stokehouse, but now we're just carby spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we wouldn't have some of the amazing cuisines we have today if someone wasn't pushing the boat out. So good on you for guys for doing that. And if you cop some heat, it probably means you're doing something little unique so I love it yeah no I like to think so how would you describe the kind of clientele that come in and you know what do you love most about the kind of people that you're serving um I think like the most important part with just any restaurant in general is to remember like you're there for the, the people you know it's all well and good to try to like for me to have just gone down some like some just pushing my own wine agenda on people but uh, I'm like a firm believer that the restaurant decides what it wants to be. You know, if people keep asking me for this, well, then that's going to be on the list. So just kind of changing. But, yeah, so, you know, you can try to do a cool little pasta bar and try to market to a bunch of hip hip 30-year-olds. But if you if you average demographic or like clientele are in their 50s, retirees and stuff like that living in Tenerife, you're, you're going to make some changes or you're going to go out of business. And, you know, I always found that there's a there's an opportunity there to kind of broaden your own kind of palate as well. If everybody's asking for rosé and everybody wants dry Provence rosé, you know, there's a lot of great producers out there and they don't all have to be kind of what people imagine. There's lots of layer and detail in some of those producers. So you kind of just kind of find something that kind of fits both, don't you find? Like the, the, what they want, but also kind of what interests you and also what fits the kind of vibe of the restaurant? Yeah, we, are, we always kind of joke in Brisbane that people drink rosé with their eyes, you know. It just has to have that right colour and be from Provence and, and that's pretty much it. But, but yeah, like, like you said, there's a bunch of cool producers out there. There's always something new to try. We could, you mean, you could always just serve rosé out of black glasses and just tell them that, you know, <laughs> it has to be out of a black glass and they, get, they don't have a chance to, uh, to, to make that assumption. <laughs> Yeah, I get, oh, maybe I'll experiment. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Alex, what do you love most about your job and what do you? what is the, the part that you think you'd like to skip over each year? Oh, the, the best part is I just hide all my friends, really. So sometimes it doesn't really feel like work when you're with a bunch of people and then, you know, you spend 30, 40 hours with them every week. But then for some reason you all hang out on your days off as well, which is probably a bit silly, but... Working, working with people that you love is probably the best part. In the past, I'd love to skip over. Jeez, there's so much admin. Like, it's so boring. <laughs> but there's always people, you know, like, always someone hassling you for money. Like, it's just, you know, you forget, you forget an invoice. People act like I'm just trying to dodge their calls. I'm like, you didn't, you didn't give me a paper invoice. I lost, I didn't check my emails. I'm sorry, I'll pay you tomorrow. How's that sound? <laughs> There is a lot. And I think sometimes people forget that, you know, a huge part of your job is working on a restaurant floor, you know, 
in the heat of service and then yeah there's this other whole other life of nine to five where people sit in front of a desk and get all that done but you have to maintain you know a huge um part of your job which is a lot of energy and a lot of time you know running up and down and and doing that and then then do all those other components as well while you know and you've only got 24 hours in the day and you do need to sleep some of it yeah so much mopping as well oh my god (laughs) mopping have you got like concrete floors or something like that yeah, just uh, and plants. So many plants we've got there. So that's like it's a chore just to water them every week. Uh, like, but yeah, like that. That's it. You know, the the best parts are during service. And sometimes you'll be on site for 10, 11 hours, but really only there for like a solid three hours of service. And and that's the best part. That's why you do it. The the regulars that come in. You know when you. When you push someone out of their comfort zone with a wine, you know, like what do you usually drink at home? All right. So then you probably like this or this or this. Try this, try this. And getting people to try different wines is always the most exciting part of the job. Yeah, I totally agree. And it is um, it's so rewarding when you go on a journey with, with a customer and they trust you and, and you come out the other side and, and it's been an enjoyable experience because it, it makes you feel really good. And, and, you know, you, like you said, you, you've turned them onto something, a, a great producer or somebody that, um, you know, makes great wine and, and yeah, you help everybody out and it comes full circle. So. Yeah. You know, with a, with a more smaller and concise list, yeah, I'm not just going to buy, you know, just the wines, you know, I'm not going to just buy New Zealand sub one because everyone keeps asking for it, but I'll find something that's kind of not too dissimilar and kind of push people down that pathway and nine, nine out of 10 times they'll, they'll kind of thank me for it or enjoy it. And they've got something else to look for now when they go to Dan Murphy's. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, um, I think it's a great approach and there is so much wine out there as well. And, and we need to kind of share the love of every, of everybody that's attempting to do different and exciting styles. So um, what's next for you? And um, what's on the cards for, for the future? Uh, I feel like we're all kind of, especially in the restaurant industry, we're all kind of feeling the after effects of COVID-19, you know, that it's, it's been a tough couple of months. Oh, geez, over a year now. There's just some good weeks and some bad weeks. So I think just keeping your head above water over the next year or two, but, then just something something great about like opening up a restaurant because it's kind of got your DNA, your thumbprint on it. So I'd love to maybe do something else, do something a bit different. My kind of idea of what a wine bar should look like or my idea of what this should look like or something something weird and wonderful. I keep joking that I want to open up a Sri Lankan restaurant and just do... <laughs> Just do hoppers and stuff like that. Hoppers and nutty wines and play hip hop in the background. So I think there's something to be said about a venue kind of sharing the same intrinsic, like, you know, fiber of who you are as a person. It's kind of artistic representation. It sounds a bit wanky, but. Oh, it doesn't at all. And I think that you're onto something there. Hoppers, hip hop, and hot AF wines. I, I could sign up for that easy. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to go into business? I know you've got some free time. <laughs> I have zero free time. I'm a screaming child. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. That'll do it. <laughs> That'll do it. Alex, hit me up. Consultancy basis then. Yeah. Well, well, now that I could do. <laughs> Alex, tell me if you can drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what are they going to be? Uh, 
You know, it's kind of a riff on a question like in wine circles. We always sometimes ask like if you only could drink from one wine region in the whole world. So you'd always think about a place that has like a real breadth that does a sparkling, a white, a red, a dessert wine. But I think we I think we touched on it before, but beer. Obviously beer is first and foremost. Followed by I'm gonna say champagne. Champagne is a lot more versatile than a lot of people give it credit for, you know. Something about grow a, grow a champagne and a whole bucket of KFC that just somehow works magic. And you know what? I'd just be happy with those two, you know? Alex, it has been real. It's Thank been you. a blast. It's been so nice. And I haven't seen you for such a long time. And uh, I'm sad about that. But hopefully when you get down to Sydney um, I or, you know, a junket comes up, we'll be able to, to catch up and um, have a beer together or a pet nap. Yeah, I look, I look forward to it. <laughs> Best of luck for everything and thanks for joining me today. Cheers to you. Absolute pleasure. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.